Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's a historic time for the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. For 86 years, USJ has been an all-women college, and now male undergrad students are welcome to enroll in the university's undergrad program. Coming up, we'll speak to the president of the school about why USJ made this decision. Is this change being welcomed by female students? We'll also hear from Inside Higher Ed about whether USJ's decision mirrors trends among other traditional same-sex higher ed institutions. Are you a USJ alum? What do you think about this change? You can join our conversation coming up later. Also, Connecticut manufacturing has been growing in recent years, but are local companies being impacted by President Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs? We'll find out more with the news editor of the Hartford Business Journal. That's just ahead. But first, the state has recently settled a lawsuit filed by a former inmate of the Connecticut Department of Correction. 39-year-old Wayne World sued the state, alleging the medical staff employed by DOC through a contract with Yukon Health committed medical malpractice by delaying care and treatment for skin cancer. Meanwhile, more suits have been filed against the Department of Correction. We wanted to know more about this story, so joining us now in studio is Connecticut Mirror reporter Mackenzie Rigg. Mackenzie, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I should also tell our listeners if you want to join the conversation, the number 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Mackenzie, I mentioned that uh, the state recently reached a settlement with uh, former inmate Wayne World. Tell us about him. What happened to him when he was incarcerated? So he was serving a 17-year sentence for manslaughter. Um, He first went to medical staff in 2012 for dark patches that he had on his skin that he said that, according to the suit, he had had for some time and what medication responded. But his condition started to worsen. Those affected areas became lesions and blisters. And he started to request more and more care. And so, like you said, the suit claims that the correctional staff um, and the medical staff there failed to properly treat and identify his skin cancer And this lawsuit goes into many details about the many medical visits he had, the many prescriptions he was prescribed, and so forth. But one of the most telling lines in this had to do with kind of how he was being treated. And at one point, he was regularly covered in gauze and covered in topical creams. And it became so bad that his sores would bleed through the sheets. And so it took from 2012 to 2015 for him to first be diagnosed with skin cancer He was released on medical parole on May 7th, so he is out right now. Last week, Wayne and state officials did sign the settlement. The state agreed to pay Wayne $1.3 million. But I think it's important to note that in the actual settlement, it does say that Wayne owes the state about $700,000 in incarceration and other costs. They cannot go after that from his settlement money. And his attorney thinks it's highly unlikely the state will collect on this because Wayne, because of his condition and his disease, cannot work right now. But I thought that was like a really interesting point to um, to make sure I highlighted in the story mm-hmm. that while he's getting this money, they're 
there is this. Um, the state's trying, hoping to recoup some of the incarceration costs. Yeah. And his attorney really, like I said, thinks it's really highly unlikely and didn't seem alarmed by it. But it was a part of the settlement that I had to take a step back and ask a few questions about. And his settlement comes at a time when, like you said, there are other suits pending and this really growing concern, public concern about how inmates are getting their mental and medical health care and whether or not we have a systemic issue going on. So um, because uh, unless uh, you know, we know someone that's been incarcerated or have experience with the prison system, walk us through who are the people that are actually in charge of delivering medical care to inmates? So for 20 years, it was through Yukon Health Center, um, I mean, Yukon Health, and they had a contract through DOC. And in some of the prisons, there's actual medical units and some there's not. And if someone needed specialized care outside of the prison, it would have to be reviewed by a committee of doctors. And one of the things that was said at this six year, I mean, six hour long hearing was the fact that it was sometimes very hard to get this specialized care and that requests for this could sometimes be delayed weeks and and so on. And and this is definitely highlighted in Wayne's suit about his request for a biopsy as well as getting an outside view from a dermatologist for his skin condition. But now since July, the actual Department of Correction has taken back management of the health care for inmates. But a lot of the same employees that worked for UConn Health doing this, the physicians and so forth, have come on as well. But they're definitely in the midst of a transition, and we're kind of all waiting and seeing how things play out with this new management structure. You mentioned this informational hearing that happened in July um, before lawmakers. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to hear from uh, State Senator uh, Heather Summers, who's a Republican from Groton, co-chair of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee. But something that, if you could walk us through a little bit of somebody that actually uh, spoke at this hearing was former Chief Medical Officer Dr. Joseph Breton. This is someone that was in the job for three months, and I believe I understand that he resigned because he didn't want to have to deal. He saw that there are problems and they weren't being resolved. What were some of the things that he told lawmakers that was particularly troubling about the lag time between if an inmate was dealing with a health condition and whether they were getting the proper treatment? So, yes, he was the head of medical, but before that he was a doctor in the prison system. So he saw firsthand what it was like to be a primary care doctor and one of the things he really highlighted was the review for outside care and how at the beginning the vast majority of his requests for outside specialty care would be would be denied. So he learned the system and he learned what to request and not request. And even though we live in a system now where there are some barriers to care, whether or not your insurance will cover something or not, it's not the same, he was saying, inside the prison system. And so... Again, it was, there was just such an issue of delay of getting people health care when it came to specialties like dermatology or cardiology that you couldn't do inside a prison medical unit. Uh, didn't uh, Dr. Breton also say that I think of all the, the requests that he would put in, about like 90 percent of them were denied by this committee that was put together? He said at the beginning 90 to 95 percent, but I think what he highlighted is, is that he learned the system. Mm-hmm. So I think he probably saw... Um, better, you know, better results later on, but he wasn't requesting things that he knew, at least gave the impression that he knew would not be approved. And that's just not the standard of care that we receive outside of the prison system.
This is where we live. Mackenzie Rigg is in studio with me, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. We're talking about um, issues within the Department of Correction and how uh, medical care, again, uh, health care, is delivered to inmates. Uh, recently, the state settled uh, with an inmate who is now out on medical uh, parole. Uh, he has skin cancer, and there are uh, other cases out there. How many cases against the state of Connecticut? I'm not I, I'm not sure of the exact amount, but I know of at least two or three that are pending right now. And one has to do with an inmate who did die in custody. It was it was filed um, on behalf of him by his mother and his mother has she did testify at this six hour hearing and has gone public about his case. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the conversation uh, State Senator Heather Summers. Senator Summers, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, so we're getting a little bit of an overview with reporter Mackenzie Rigg about uh, some of the issues within uh, the Department of Correction and this contract with uh, Yukon Health. You held uh, one of these hearings to look into uh, this alleged medical malpractice. Uh, can you tell us what you heard? Sure. And, you know, first I would like, I'd like everyone who's listening to understand that um, I wanted to have a public hearing, and that would mean that... Um, a hearing would uh, oblige certain people to testify. Uh, you would be required to come testify. Um, but unfortunately for, for me, um, being the, the co-chair of public health, I did not have support from the other side of the aisle to hold a public hearing. So we ended up having to have a public forum. And the difference is a forum, you have a set agenda, you have the speakers or those who are interested in um, coming and telling their story already lined up, so it doesn't really allow for public input. And I know at the end of our uh, our uh, informational hearing, um, there was people that had wanted to testify, uh, but because it wasn't a public hearing, we really couldn't allow that. So we're hoping that we can have a public hearing so more people can come and shed a light on what's actually happened at, um, you know, the Department of Corrections with the Yukon Healthcare system before the transition so we know what the issues are going forward and we can ensure that they're fixed. That's one of the big issues that we have is if we can't see the report on 25 cases that were chosen clearly because there's issues and we can't see why there was a breakdown of care, then how do we have any confidence that this transition is working when we don't know what the issues were to begin with? And that was one of the reasons on having this you know, informational hearing to really bring light to the fact that we have a system that's really gone unchecked and unfettered for 20 years. It's been a no-bid contract with UConn. Whether they wanted it or not, they've had it for 20 years, and there's been no checks and balances. And now we have situations where we have, as uh, Mackenzie was mentioning, 19-year-old healthy men going into prison. Um, you know, I believe that that particular person's uh, sentence was two years dying in prison, you know, of curable diseases. You know, the skin cancer um, diagnosis is absolutely just unfathomable that you could go and be wrapped in gauze and bleeding through gauze and, and not have care for three years. Senator Summers, so, uh, Senator Summers, I, we're, we're short on time, but I wanted to get yeah. to um, the fact that you had uh, alluded to the, a consultant's report, again, and Mackenzie mentioned this too, that has looked into yeah. 25 cases of uh, possible uh, malpractice uh, within uh, the Department of Correction. Again, this medical care given to them or not given to them by uh, this contract through UConn Health. This is something that the, the DOC will not release. 
That's correct. We have asked to see it, and we're not asking to see it to go on a witch hunt. We are asking to see it so that we can find out where um, the ball was dropped so that we can make sure it doesn't get dropped again. And we have not been privy to it. Um, We have asked that it be sent to the state auditors, which it has, but the auditors are not able to release that information to us. And again, this comes down to how do you fix a system that is clearly broken um, if you can't find what the root cause of the breakdown is. And that's really where we want to go with this. And, um, you know, I think it's very, very important from public health, you know, there, there's not necessarily a lot of sympathy for those who are incarcerated to get health care, because I know on the outside, people struggle with paying for health care, um, you know, on their own. These folks are in our care, they're in our custody, and we have a duty to provide health care to them. And when we heard the testimony from the physicians, and I don't blame anybody who's working in that system, but we have to find out what the root cause is and fix it. And if it's understaffing, we need to fix that. If it's access to um, specialty care, that clearly was an issue. We heard repeatedly that this board would deny the access to the care. That's something that has to be fixed. We did reach out to the Department of Correction through their spokesperson, Karen Martucci, uh, and uh, they sent us a statement. Part of it reads, as we reshape our health care delivery system after transitioning from Yukon Health to the Department of Correction, we're focused on creating an enhanced model of services with a strong foundation of quality assurance. But Senator Summers, are you concerned with the fact that uh, with this transition, again, uh, this, the Department of Correction is going to be relying on a lot of the same people that were employed through uh, the Yukon contract to deliver care to the these inmates? Well, I believe it's something like 95%. Basically, what we did is take this contracted service through the University of Connecticut and just transfer it over to the DOC. So the folks that were working for UConn, I think it was called UConn Medical, are now working for the DOC. It's not the people. I want to stress that. It's not the state employees that are trying to deliver the care. I heard from many state employees after our informational hearing that they were distressed, that they couldn't testify you know, that's because it was a, um, you know, an informational hearing. We're going to have a public hearing where they can come and testify. And we need to hear from them because we need to understand what the issues are. But it's the management of and who's in charge of that delivery system on how those folks are executed, what the staffing ratios are. I can tell you, after the informational hearing, I heard from physicians that I know personally that went to UConn that were ENTs and talked about how ridiculous it was as a um, you know, a resident, they would go in and they would have to see 1,800 patients in one day. It just it was impossible the way the system was set up. And it has been, you know, a disaster for years and years. Um, now, unfortunately, it's come to light because now we've had um, either people that have terrible diseases dying or we've had people actually die in prison or give birth in cells by themselves in prison. And it's come to a tipping point that has to be addressed. You know, this legislature is in charge of making sure that um, health care is delivered to these individuals at a cost that is reasonable for the taxpayers. We've been spending, with benefits, $140 million, and this is the result. So we need to be good stewards of how our money is spent and make sure health care is delivered in a way that is appropriate. I want to go back to Mackenzie Rigg, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Mackenzie, uh, when will this full transition um, be completed, and who are the people that uh, DOC Corrections uh, uh, Commissioner is hiring to, to oversee this now? So I haven't he- heard a clear time frame, but I know by the beginning of, y- of the year they were hoping to have some more of that management staff on in place. And in terms of who they've hired, 
I don't know exactly who they are, actually. Um, that's not an area that I've looked in deeply. Uh, Senator Summers, uh, we, we, we're going to have a new governor in January. I mean, what's the, uh, I guess, the expectation that uh, with a new administration that, you know, this is still going to be something that will be resolved and, uh, you know, we won't see these issues because it sounds like there are uh, there are suits uh, coming down the line more and more. This is going to be a, a fiscal problem for the state of Connecticut moving forward. Well, you know, I, I have um, great hopes that whoever is the new governor will take situations like this and are the whiting forensic situation very seriously. Um, I personally believe that whoever comes in will bring in their commissioners. Maybe some will stay. Um, But I think a change at the top is necessary to make sure that the tone is set so that the new commissioners, whoever they will be coming in, will understand that the state of Connecticut has a duty to care for those who are vulnerable, who are incarcerated, who are in our care, and to make sure that the health care that they are receiving is adequate. There is no reason in this day and age that we should have a man dying of skin cancer after three years of not being treated. That's just unconscionable. And, um, you know, I think it would give the legislature much more confidence if we could go through the 25 cases they can redact the name. We don't need to know the inmate. We don't need to know the number. We just need to know where the system failed. So we have a surety that it will not happen again. State Senator Heather Summers, again, she's a Republican from Groton, co-chair of the General Assembly's Public Health Committee. Uh, Senator Summers, thanks again for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Also, Mackenzie Rigg, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, who's been looking into uh, this issue, among others around the state. Thank you, Mackenzie, for your perspective. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, growth in manufacturing is one, if not only, bright spot in Connecticut's economy. But how are manufacturers, both large and small, being impacted by the president's tariffs on aluminum and steel? The news editor of the Hartford Business Journal joins us with more. That's after the break. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. CNBC reported that in less than five months, the Trump administration has collected more than $1.4 billion in new revenue from levies on foreign steel and aluminum. That's according to a recent report prepared by the Congressional Research Service. But how do the, how do the tariffs impact manufacturers' bottom line, especially in our state? The Hartford Business Journal looked into that question. And joining me now is Matt Pilon, news editor at the Hartford Business Journal. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So remind us again about about uh, these tariffs that President Trump put in place. Uh, what is the administration's uh, long view with these tariffs? Right. So um, the administration first announced uh, these metals tariffs on uh, various imported steel and aluminum uh, back in March. It's about 25% tariff on steel, uh, 10% on aluminum. And what their argument uh, seems to boil down to is a combination of um, some other countries that we import these metals from. We think they've treated us unfairly in terms of their trade policies. They also make a national security uh, justification or argument for these tariffs, arguing that there are key industries here that we need to have healthy for the security of the country. I understand that President Trump has also suggested these tariffs are going to uh, reduce the federal deficit. How's that uh, view being uh, uh, accepted by uh, different people? 
as you just mentioned a, a, a moment ago, the you know the 1.4 billion collected so far. So these tariffs they do go to the U.S. Treasury. I mean, they're essentially you know taxes paid by the users of these uh, imported materials. Th- that's expected to maybe hit seven and a half billion by the end of this year. Um, the federal deficit is uh, a, you know a, a fair bit larger than that. I mean, 7.5 billion is nothing to to scoff at. But they also haven't said you know exactly how much they might put towards that. I mean, there's sort of nothing firm on that. but. And we've seen uh, companies uh, say that they're worried these tariffs are going to lead to job losses, a drop in U.S. exports. Uh, but what are some of the benefits? Are domestic steelmakers ma- steel seeing more business now? Uh, yes, uh, they, they certainly are. The, the, you know, the big steel mills, uh, which are largely, you know, entirely really outside of New England, the, the big aluminum mills as well, um, you know, are sort of ramping up production uh, as, as companies here, you know, look to reshuffle their supplier mix and look for more domestic metals that aren't uh, subject to those tariffs. But, you know, like I said, Connecticut doesn't have big giant mills like that. So we really kind of take, for the most part, the downstream sort of negative uh, impact of that. Now, uh, HBJ looked into this question of how it's impacting uh, local companies here, and you profiled at least three different companies. Tell us about uh, what impact they're seeing, if you could walk us through the companies you spoke with. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I did speak with three uh, central Connecticut companies, uh, ranging from, you know, uh, in the dozens of Connecticut employees to, to uh, you know, somewhere between one and 200 employees. So, so you know, a small sample when you look at the 160,000 manufacturing employees in the state and the hundreds of manufacturing companies. Um, but so, you know, between the three, and this is going to be true probably across the board, um, you know, the, the impacts vary from sort of not so bad yet to maybe a little bit more serious. Um, all of them are seeing higher, uh, for, you know, uh, pressure on uh, prices for the, for the metals that they buy. Um, you know, some of them are seeing delays in some of the orders because of the ramped up demand for domestic supply. And you know, sort of one of the, one of the ironies of of the tariffs is you know it's meant to spur uh, d- domestic business, but you know it's also driving up the cost and demand for those domestic mm-hmm. uh, metals. I understand the yeah, they're, the steel mills are now operating at or near capacity. That's right. Yeah, and um, so you know, and some of them, w- some of these mills have have pushed back against companies, including those here in Connecticut, who have tried to appeal to the Commerce Department and say we can't get enough of these products here in the U.S. You know, we, we buy this specialty product overseas and it's hard to get here. Um, the, the large mills have largely been successful at sort of batting back those objections. Tell us more about the exemption process. I understand that there is a, uh, this uh, way for uh, companies to try to get some relief, but it's the U.S. Department of Commerce that's being overwhelmed now by, the, by this process of trying to get exemptions? Right. I, I mean, there are thousands of them have been filed. Um, uh, thousands of exemptions. Uh, you know, very few have been even ruled upon, let alone uh, successfully. One of the companies I spoke with, um, uh, Gibbs Wire and Steel in Southington, um, they told me that they had filed about 85 of these exemptions and not heard anything back. I spoke with a, a, uh, an attorney who specializes in manufacturing who said there's, you know, that's not at all a regular here. It's sort of, it's kind of seen mostly as a long shot attempt, but it is one that comes with costs, uh, legal costs, et cetera. So some companies have said, you know, we we don't think we have a chance, Mm -hmm. you know, don't bother, while others have gone after it. 
Uh, when we think about uh, manufacturing here, uh, you know, the big companies come to mind, uh, like UTC, like Pratt & Whitney. But if you could give us an overview for our listeners about all of the little uh, companies that provide components and, and how much of an uh, impact this has on our state. Right. Um, well, I mean, like I said, there there are, I mean, there are hundreds of companies. Some of them use, you know, uh, mostly exclusively aluminum, while others are going to be more impacted by the, the steel tariff. It's, it's going to, it's going to vary a lot. Um, you know, one thing we can look at his, historically, you know, in the not so uh, distant past is uh, uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, uh, implemented steel tariffs specifically back in 2002. They made it to about 2003. Again, just steel, not aluminum. So this is maybe a little bit more uh, drastic here. But um, one study, and the numbers are, of course, disputed as they normally are, said uh, that Connecticut lost about 2,800 jobs as a result of that, you know, 16 months uh, w- worth of tariffs. So, you know, it sounds bad. It's well under half of 1% of the employed people in the state. Um, people will argue back and forth on, you know, sort of what the exact impacts might be. This is where we live, and stay with me, Matt Pilon, news editor of the Hartford Business Journal. Uh, we're exploring the question of how uh, President Trump's administration's tariffs on aluminum steel are impacting small fan- manufacturers in our state. If you're one of them and are listening, we want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. I mentioned uh, Pratt & Whitney. Uh, one of the companies you profiled was an aero parts maker, ACMT in Manchester. Uh, tell me what uh, that uh, CEO uh, told you about um, how they're dealing with uh, uh, these tariffs in terms of, you know, delivery delays or, uh, you know, maybe trying to purchase more of their materials now and hoping that, you know, they don't not stuck with this and not able to use it down the road. Sure. Right. So uh, ACMT indeed does make components for Pratt & Whitney, uh, you know, engines. And um, their CEO, Michael Polo, uh, shared with me that um, one one thing ACMT has, has tried to do to sort of uh, blunt or offset the, some of these impacts here is make bigger orders of this fancy, you know, aluminum, proprietary aluminum that they use and stockpile it, uh, to, you know, to the greatest extent that they can just to make sure that they don't see uh, delays in their, in their very busy um, production schedule. Um, you know, they're ordering full truckloads, never partial truckloads to kind of ensure their scheduling you know, the trucks come in on time, all that stuff. Um, one of the benefits that that company has, which was unique, at least among the handful that I talked to, is they have a long-term supply contract for that aluminum from their Midwestern mm-hmm. plant. So for now, you know, they don't maybe see that immediate price increase, but they, they know that that pressure is there and that it's probably coming uh, down the road. And in your reporting, uh, unwrought aluminum is Connecticut's second biggest import? I believe so, yeah. Uh, you also spoke to Acme Monaco in New Britain, and this. Tell me what they make, and you know what they're responsive to the tariffs. Right, sure. So, so they do things like uh, medical and orthodontic uh, guide wires. They do springs, metal stampings, um, um, uh, all sorts of things. So, unlike ACMT, which is dealing with the aluminum tariff, Acme Monaco is dealing more with the, um, you know, the 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 steel tariff, and so. Um, they are, uh, like many companies, sort of having to pass or try to pass along, um, you know, increased costs in the, ter- in the form of price increases where they can. But, you know, they also told me, like many ma- manufacturers, we have, you know, months long contracts for, you know, certain jobs where, you know, we can't just come back and immediately, uh, you know, raise our prices here. So I, uh, kind of my takeaway from them is, um, you know, this this certainly isn't a good thing. It's not it's not helping us. Uh, one thing there's their uh, president also told me that I thought was interesting, though, too, is, you know, we've been dealing with 
the challenge of foreign competition for for quite a while now. And you know, if I have to think about what I'm one of the things I'm most worried about, maybe it's not the tariffs, maybe it's finding you know the right uh, the right employees to hire with the the right kind of skills to do the job in our in our factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, you spoke to these three companies. Was it hard to to find uh, local manufacturers that wanted to talk about this at this point? Um, you know, so um, I, I I did I did talk to three, and they were great, and they were they shared a lot, and and some of their uh, you know there were some companies that weren't in the story that that you know helped connect me with some of these people. That it's a you know it's a pretty big industry, ten percent of the state's economy, but they a lot of them know each other. Um, um, so. You know, with with tariffs and with uh, you know Trump trade policies, it, it it can be a bit dicey for a company. Um, you know, even even a smaller local company, at least uh, perception wise, to um, you know sort of maybe badmouth <laughs> Trump's policies. You know, I mean, God forbid uh, they get tweeted at, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. I, I I think you know there are some companies that maybe just want to keep their head down and sort of get through this. Um, what where you know. Plenty of others so far, with both myself and other reporters in the state, have you know been uh, been willing to share. Mm. Meanwhile, uh, Pratt and Whitney, Black and Decker, UTC, um, they've been more open to talk about how the impact's going to hurt them. Um, so, those companies, I mean, I mean, some of them have uh, disclosed as they're required to, I, I believe, to their to their shareholders. You know, here's our best guess at what we think um, these tariffs might mean for our. You know our, our earnings this year. So, um, you know, I, I tried to talk to a couple um, um, unsuccessfully uh, to sort of get additional information beyond what they put out there. But we have, you know, uh, Stanley Black and Decker in New Britain, obviously a you know, big tool and hardware maker. Um, they've they've estimated about a thirty five million dollar uh, hit for two thousand eighteen. Um, now that that actually could change, and it could actually become a, a larger number depending on what um, the Trump administration does with an additional set of proposed tariffs for. 200 million or so on uh, like 12,000 different products from from China. So that number could uh, increase. It was sort of an initial number put out a couple of months ago. Um, UTC's uh, management has has you know kind of come out against tariffs. Said you know we think they're bad. They're not helping us in, in terms of an exact number on, on you know what it might mean for the the company this year. I, I don't believe they've come up with with that exact number. In your reporting, uh, one of the UTC's subsidiaries recently raised prices by three percent. That's tr- that's true on things like uh, carrier uh, air, air conditionings. Uh, although you know, I should know they 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 did not say, you know, they they didn't mention the word tariff when they did that, and uh, you know, they sort of cited more generally, um, you know, economic conditions. But there was there was speculation that with the timing that perhaps had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, has this, uh, you know, exposure uh, to uh, all this attention on uh, Trump's policies and, uh, you know, this these uh, tariff wars, uh, so to speak, with our uh, other uh, trade partners uh, internationally, has is it showing that nothing uh, that is uh, manufactured in our country is purely American-made, that there's so much interconnectivity? It's, I mean, that certainly seems to be the case. I don't know of an example of, you know, many things that are 100 uh, percent, you know, sourced and, and made here. Um, the supply chains for even the small manufacturers are 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 global in nature, um, and you know I mean these companies worry that if you know that the, they've spent you know years building those relationships and finding the right mix uh, overseas, and and now you know if they have to pull back that they could lose they could lose that, and those overseas suppliers could 
um, you know, look elsewhere to other countries, competitor countries for, for that business. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier, you mentioned one of the CEOs saying that the shortage of labor actually worries him more uh, than these tariffs. I'm curious, because we hear that so often from uh, politicians in our state uh, as a talking point. Um, you know, are there inroads being made uh, in your reporting and your colleagues of, of trying to attract talent here to work for these manufacturers? I think um, manufacturing has arguably arguably been uh, the in terms of a single industry the the largest focus um, uh, you know of Connecticut uh, say over um, uh, Governor Malloy's you know two two terms um, the state has you know invested uh, many millions of dollars in training programs um, in you know uh, grants for equipment all, all sorts of stuff um, work with some of the colleges I mean I mean uh, I think. From people I've talked to, that uh, that you know, they believe it it is having an impact and it will have an impact. Mm-hmm. It's it's a long term effort. I mean, it, it gets you can go as far back as you know, kids in uh, you know middle school, sort of how they maybe look at the kinds of things that they might pursue. So it's a it's a long term play and one the state has put a lot of resources into. And I guess um, it's we'll sort of we'll see where where it ends up. But there's definitely I think been some successes there. Mm-hmm. Matt Pilon, again, is news editor at Hartford Business Journal. We'll tweet out uh, some links to some of his stories and his colleagues as well. Matt, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. College campuses are busy again after move-in day, but this fall semester will be a historic one for the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. We're going to explain why right after the break. And if you are a USJ alum, we want to hear from you too. Join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow with climate change come looming questions about the future of Connecticut's shoreline, like how will sea level rise and extreme weather events alter the shape of the state's coast? And what will happen to the people and native species who live there? Tomorrow, we're going to have some local experts join us with some insight and talk about the ways in which municipalities are planning for future challenges. We hope you join us, too. Now, it's a historic time for the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. For 86 years, USJ has been an all-women school, but now male undergrad students are being welcomed to enroll in the university's undergraduate program. Coming up, we're going to hear from Inside Higher Ed about whether USJ's decision mirrors trends among other traditional same-sex higher ed institutions. But joining us first is the president of the school to talk about why USJ made this decision. And this has changed, being welcomed by its female students. Now, are you a USJ alum? What do you think about this change? You can join us. That's 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Rona Free, again, president of University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I understand students were moving into St. Joe's last week. uh, And how many of them are now uh, the the male students that are joining the undergrad program? So, well, last week we brought in um, over 300 new students, and 99 of them are males. And so it's been an exciting time on campus. And um, I think so far everything has gone really well. The incoming students have been um, welcoming to male students, um, the, all the new incoming freshmen, I mean, they really don't know any different. But we had probably 40 continuing students on campus as well, acting as peer leaders, orientation uh, staff, and uh, I think they were equally uh, welcoming to the men, and everybody, I think, has realized that although it's a big change, it's, uh, it's a nice change. Hope. 
What did you have to do on campus to uh, ready for their arrival? Well, our board voted uh, last June um, to become fully co-educational, and we actually started the very next day changing our admissions materials, our videos about the campus. Uh, and then over the course of the year, we had a co-education implementation team that um, worked on everything from making sure that we would still have women's only residence halls but have accommodations for men to athletic teams. We started new academic programs. Um, and we did also a lot of faculty and staff development, making sure that the climate would continue to be one that was really focused on empowering women. Mm. Well, what are some of the factors of why you decided, your board decided to, to approve this last year and make, a, again, the program co-ed after such a long history as a, a, you know, a single gender school? Well, there's evidence that shows that only about 2% of high school students who take the SATs indicate that they would consider going to a women's only college or a men's only college. Um, and in the state of Connecticut, with about 39,000 students graduating each year, about half of them female, that meant that there were only about 390 students in state who would be really interested in the University of St. Joseph. And uh, so we wanted to expand that base. Uh, we wanted to be able to increase enrollment total so that we could offer more programs for the undergraduate women along with the men that we would bring in. Um, it was really critical that we have the financial resources to be able to make the transition effectively. So this was a decision that had been looked at in the past. At the time in the past, the decision was made that it wasn't the right moment. Uh, but last year, the trustees realized there were the financial resources, the institution was on very stable financial footing. And uh, so in order to increase enrollment, offer more opportunities for undergraduate women and really create a more vibrant campus, um, the decision was made. Mm -hmm. um, did you see when you uh, made this decision, uh, you said that this has come, had come up before, but it wasn't the right time. So I'm curious, you know, what were some of the arguments against uh, becoming co-ed? I think uh, alumni loved the idea that uh, St. Joe's would continue to be an all-women's institution, and the alumni responses that we've had were, for the most part, very positive. Uh, most alumni said they realized the world has changed and institutions have to change along with it. For the alumni who um, had different views, it was really more a sense of disappointment. They, they were sorry that future students wouldn't have the same experience that they had. They loved their time at St. Joe's. Uh, so I think that was an important factor is, is trying to ensure that those alumni uh, didn't lose their sense that the mission of the university uh, was going to continue to focus on empowering women. Um, but I think we made pretty compelling arguments about the fact that we would continue to focus on empowering women. We'll keep programs. We created a new women's leadership center. We're adding new women's athletic teams. Um, so that we'll continue to do that. That won't get lost. And in fact, we can make changes that will make the value of their St. Joe's degrees, no matter when they got them, um, even more valuable. And we can continue to attract more undergraduate women. 
This is where we live. In studio with me, Rona Free, president of University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. Uh, the university is now co-ed after an 86-year history of being an all-women's college. If you're a USJ alum, we want to hear from you, too. The number, 860-275-7266. We wanted to get perspective on what's happening uh, across the country with single-gender schools. And so joining us now is Scott Jassick, editor at Inside Higher Ed. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. I know that you have reported on this, and I'm just curious. You've heard um, President Rona Free talk about some of the factors behind uh, USJ's uh, consideration of going co-ed. Um, tell us about, you know, is this typical when you're looking at um, other schools that have made the switch? And um, I'm just curious what impact they've seen uh, since making the change. So many other institutions are making similar uh, choices. So I think this is very much in keeping with a broad trend. Um, it is, as you just heard, very hard to convince many high school women to attend a women's college, even if all the data show that they love it once they enroll. Another issue I would raise is that many women's colleges, uh, or historically women's colleges, have a tradition of producing school teachers, health professionals, and I see those programs are uh, offered there at, at uh, USJ. And I think it's important to note that at the time that many of these colleges were created, being a school teacher or a nurse was something only women did. Um, now, in fact, uh, the, the, those professions are open to others. And in fact, many people want to see more uh, teachers and nurses of, uh, of different backgrounds. So the, the nature of education and gender roles has also changed. Are you seeing, um, though, uh, women's colleges that um, still have an appeal and that um, are still doing well? And what it, what makes them set them apart from, from uh, other schools that have been seeing declining enrollment and have decided to go co-ed? Sure. So, so the elite women's colleges, the former Seven Sisters institutions, those that have remained women's colleges are seeing quite a boom these days. They are residential liberal arts colleges, less focused on pre-professional training, and they are seeing an increase in the yield, which is the percentage of admitted applicants who enroll. And they uh, believe, in part, it's a reaction to Me Too, to the Trump administration, that they're seeing young women who look at what's going on in society as a devaluing of women and uh, are finding a women's college to be a more attractive place to be. Mm. Now, when you uh, look at uh, the colleges that have decided to go co-ed, what are the challenges in attracting uh, male students? And what are some of the, I guess, the features, so to speak, that a college will uh, put into play to attract these male students? So it is a challenge. Actually, I'm impressed with the first year uh, gender split at, uh, that, that St. Joseph has achieved because some colleges really struggle. Um, you see the creation of some of the things you just heard about, sports programs and, and for residential institutions, dormitories. Um, at some institutions, branding needs to change. Um, it's also hard because if a college has for throughout its history, shouted to the world, we're a women's college and that's the best thing to be, um, there needs to be a little bit of rebranding uh, to talk about the values of the institution. And then a general problem is that whether they're women's colleges or not, um, more of those going to higher education these days are women than men. So there is actually something of a shortage of men in much of higher education uh, that means it is tough to attract them. I'm curious, and I wanted to get both your perspective on this. You know, are uh, adding sports programs the best way to attract male students? I'll start with you, Scott. 
Um, I'll say that some have, in fact, uh, uh, had success that way. The reality is that some men are looking for an athletic experience that uh, that they didn't uh, that they can't find at a big time program, and so the college can recruit for that program. Um, my guess is a place like uh, St. Joseph isn't going to turn up in the Rose Bowl or the Final Four anytime soon. But there are a lot of male students who do want that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rona Free again, president of University of St. Joseph. You mentioned uh, there are 99 male students that enrolled for the fall semester. How many of them are on the sports teams? About half of them, and that's what we anticipated. We had talked to a lot of presidents at colleges that had become co-educational in the last 12 years or so um, to get their perspective on what helped them be successful in recruiting males, what they think that they could have done better. Uh, And uh, we got a lot of good advice. And one of the things that was emphasized was that uh, of the students who come in in the first male class, about half of them can be expected to be student athletes if you offer those programs. And so we did that. Um, We are offering four men's programs this year. But I think we really tried to use a range of strategies. So one of the things that we've been focusing on at St. Joe's, not just for attracting men, but for all students, is um, to tap into what is another trend in college students, which is desiring uh, to be in a city instead of in a rural location. And so we've really focused on the advantages for students of being at St. Joe's, which is so close to the city of Hartford, with the corporations, the emphasis on uh, opportunities for internships and experiential education. Um, so I, it's not just uh, uh, sports that will attract men. Obviously, there are a lot of things, and those are the same things that we've been focusing on to attract more women mm-hmm. to the university as well. Tell us about some of the specific programs that you have at USJ that you think um, appeal to both men and women. Well, this year we started new programs in sports management and promotion, uh, computer and data science, bioinformatics, um, biochemistry. We have strong programs in the sciences, and so we have 11 incoming students in biochemistry, which is pretty large for a school our size. Uh, so it's a, a range of programs. Uh, Scott's right that we have most of our students in uh, nursing, uh, health-related occupations and, and disciplines like uh, nutrition. Um, And we're really working hard at trying to do things that will attract men into those majors. For example, creating special transfer agreements for EMTs, for um, uh, veterans, for example, who may have had some medical experience, to try to get men into the traditionally female occupations and disciplines. And we'll do the same thing with women, do what we can to get women to go into the disciplines that at other institutions are traditionally more male-dominated. Now, Rona, I'm curious, um, if uh, USJ had not made this decision to become co-ed, what do you think the long-term impact would be? Would you, have you seen declining enrollment? Would uh, costs uh, be going up for, for prospective students? I think we, we did have alternate paths that we could have taken. We could have um, continued to increase reliance on graduate programs. We could have let the undergraduate program uh, get a little smaller. But uh, we, we talked about all those options with a very big task force that we created with alumni, with current students, and they all agreed that they would like to expand the traditional undergraduate women and came to the conclusion that co-education, for us, it might not be the right thing for other institutions, but for us, this was the best way to go.
Uh, Scott Jassick, again, from editor editor at Inside Higher Ed. Before uh, we end the show, we are curious now that uh, more and more students are out expressing uh, non-traditional uh, gender identities. So how do single gender schools deal with that? Uh, so uh, many of the institutions that are still women's colleges have adopted new policies. Uh, historically, they've said as long as you are a woman at the point of enrollment, they have not kicked the student out who may transition to become a man. Uh, but increasingly, women's colleges are admitting students who may have been um, uh, born a, a woman, but whose identity is male and are transitioning, or are born a man and who are transitioning to be a woman. A woman. So they are admitting students based on their identification as a woman, not just their uh, at birth legal status as a woman. And it's important for many of these institutions because they see themselves as on the cutting edge of uh, protecting the rights of everybody and being a supportive environment for everybody. Um, And this is an issue in a way that it isn't at a co-ed institution. Mm. And one thing you said earlier, Scott, about fewer men uh, enrolling uh, uh, in uh, uh, undergraduate programs across the board, um, is this something that with decreased enrollment that, um, you know, schools are thinking about in terms of, you know, if they're not enrolling now, like how do we attract them to our schools so we don't see increased costs down the road? Uh, Many are very concerned about this. Some institutions are admitting that they're basically practicing affirmative action for men and admitting men with lower grades and test scores than women. Others are rethinking their marketing programs. Co-ed institutions are looking at adding athletics. Um, This is now there are some who say this is kind of uh, unfair in that much of society didn't really care at all when for decades enrollments were dominated by men. Um, But there is a sense that our society will be hurt if fewer men have degrees. And uh, and so a lot of colleges are, are working on it. Uh, Rona Free again, president of University of St. Joseph. Uh, the you know school's about to start. We've got uh, 99 uh, male students now in your undergraduate program. Moving forward, how are you going to, I guess, uh, be uh, overseeing this change and engaging your student body, and if it's working for USJ? So far, it's working. The number of students living on campus has gone up from uh, 230 to 330. So that was a, one of our major goals, was to get more students living on campus, create a very engaged uh, campus environment. Uh, so I think that will continue to rise. We'll continue to focus on engaging our students with the community and um, making sure that our, our students continue to be well-prepared academically. Rona Free, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much. Also, Scott Jassick, editor at Inside Higher Ed, will tweet out a link to his story. Scott, thank you. Thank you. This Bye. is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live.